Hi, and welcome back to the AMPS podcast. My name's Owen Peters. And I'm Owen Shirley. It's early March in the UK while we're recording, um, and we are still in a lockdown situation, unfortunately. Um, But Owen and I have been able to go for a a walk, a socially distanced walk, to a place called Lee Court, just on the outskirts of Bristol, which is kind of like an old stately home, really. And the reason we're here is because it was the location for some of the production of the blockbuster Netflix series Bridgerton. Yeah, so we were joined by production sound mixer Tim Surrey and first assistant sound Johnny White, who uh, worked on the show and, and were kind enough to let us know some great insights to the extraordinary sound work that they were able to achieve in locations just like this. So you're here to sit down together over Zoom to chat about all kinds of unexpected things, crowds, animals, and even a bit of heavy weather. Yeah, some indoor heavy weather. Um, Unfortunately, I wasn't able to join Owen and Tim and Johnny for the discussion, but I'll hand you over to Owen now. Let me just start by introducing yourself, production sound mixer Tim Surrey. Uh, So, hi, Tim. Hi there. I'm Tim Surrey, production sound mixer. Thanks very much. And a first assistant sound, Johnny White. Hi, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, thanks to both of you for taking the time just to chat to us about uh, your work on Bridgerton, which has been hugely successful. Uh, I think pretty much everyone I know has watched this show, uh, in and out of sound. So, um, yeah, it's really good to be able to get your insights on this for the podcast. So I thought the best place to start would just be if you could describe the production from your end, really, the scale of it in terms of the size of the crew and a uh, number of locations, all those kind of details that would just give us some scope. I think it was, it's a hundred and something shoot days. The plan was initially was to shoot six week blocks. So four weeks on the road in locations such as Hatfield House, Castle Howard, Bath, Bristol, Rangers House in Greenwich, and then do two weeks in the studio where they'd built the Featherington House and the Bridgerton household and various other small sets. But the, for whatever logistical reason, the studio wasn't ready. So we did four week blocks, a week off, four weeks, a week off. And then we did two months solidly in the studio. And, you know, when we were out on the road, it was quite, uh, you know, it, it quickly became very apparent how big the job was when we sort of would turn up to these places and, you know, well, Castle Howard is, you know, a massive, well, it's not a castle exactly, sort of, you know, a big manor house, stately home. You know, all of these other places and there'd be sort of, I think in the first block we went to, I think it was Stowe where we did one of the balls, the first ball where, you know, we sort of turn up and we're parked miles away from the location and I'm like, oh, can't we get a bit closer? And then, they basically say no, and we start walking down there, and there's just sparks truck, sparks truck, generator, generator, special effects, special effects, special effects, and and you can see it in this ball where they have these pyramids that all like fireworks going off. Out of these pyramids, we've got a stage with dancers. I've forgotten how many dancers, 30 dancers. There's like a little side thing with an orchestra in and you know there's there's a there's a lake and they they sort of you know there are boats on the lake 
I mean, as a sort of trainee, I worked on some some big films, and you know, this is as big, if not bigger, than anything that I've ever worked on before. On the on these days where we had these balls, you know, it was enormous. You know, the caterers are doing five, six hundred people for for breakfast. You know, it's that sort of scale. But then once we got into the studio, it did narrow down a little bit. But at the same time, you do a scene where. You know, you look at the sides or the script and it says Simon and Daphne have dinner. And you're like, oh, nice, you know. But then you're like, oh, there's still eight actors in the room. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> still, sure. You know, there's still two cameras, each with three people around them. Eight, act, you know, Simon, Daphne, six footmen. And then there's, you know, a, the housekeeper comes in at some point or someone else comes in and you're like, oh, it's... Simon and Daphne have dinner, but there's still 11 people, you know, yeah. five of whom have a line. It's that sort of thing where even when it was small, it wasn't small, it was still quite big. You know, it's not one of those shows where you, oh, it's two people talking, two people talking, two people talking. It's every day it was like, oh, we've got 11 radios out, eight radios out. You know, yeah. everyone... Yeah. You know, it, for us, it was quite a big, you know, a big complex show from that point of view. Yeah, sure. You can really see it on screen. Um, seems seems enormously complex and everything is, as you say, large scale. I, in terms of um, the two of you together working in these locations and on sets, were you ever close to each other? Um, so, um, or Tim, were you always kind of further away and Johnny, were you always in the midst of it? Because that's how it seems very by the nature of the scale of it. Once we were in the studio, it was quite nice because we could be, you know, I could be 20 metres away and range is no issue. Mm. But in some of these big Wilton House, Wilton Hall, Wilton House, you know, Castle Howard, you'll be like, they'll be doing a bedroom scene and, and I'll be like, oh, I'll just plot up, you know, round the corner, you know, I'll find a little area where I can have a bit of space. And then you're like, oh, we're not getting any, any range issues. And you're like, oh, that's because the wall is two metres thick of solid stone. <laughs> and that's why we're not getting range. Yeah. <laughs> it's because there's, you know, if you're even two walls away, you know, if you're not in the room next door, you've got four metres of stone sometimes between you. So, you know, there were times when, you know, we were close, but we're still always far away mm. if you know what i mean <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely there was a few times when you know mid-scene tim would be like i need to reposition and get closer and then you know you'd have to have a conversation with the first ad and be like we need like two minutes to wheel the trolley to a different position and you just have to sort of explain you know say look we, you know we're not getting range we need to be closer and they would Usually, you know, they would accommodate you, but you'd have to be quite sort of firm with them and be like, because, you know, like Tim said, the wall's like four foot thick of solid stone. Yeah, yeah. Just the physics of architecture. Yeah, like, you know, <laughs> in terms of like, you know, distance wise, you're not that far away, but the, the environment creates all these extra problems. So, yeah, sure. 
of course, that was a necessity of it being a period drama and uh, shooting in certain locations that reflect that, which also brings me on to um, the fact that you've obviously got a certain expectation with costume design that goes with a period drama like this. So what was your approach to uh, working with that and planning for the costume? So we went in before before product, you know, before shooting and sort of said hello to costume and sort of, you know, said this is the plan. And then we came up, you know, there's a video of Lizzie, the second AS. There's a Shondaland have done this behind the scenes and you can see, you know, Lizzie, it's like a day in the life of Lizzie, the second AS, and you see her handing out the radios and, you know, it's sort of, the way it worked was we would hand them, you know, they'd be in their trailers when they, once we'd done a couple of weeks, you know, we knew Jonathan Bailey wanted a thigh strap, Daphne wanted a thigh, you know, we knew what straps they wanted, we knew what mics, what mounts were needed, so we'd just put them in a pencil case and then in the morning, Lizzie would go around and put it in their trailers and then they'd come to set and the mic would just sort of be poking out the top of their costume and we'd do like a final thing. Because with the women, with the corsets, it was quite... It's not something we could do on set. Once they're strung into their corsets, you know, you're, that's it, it's done. And the, the sort of feedback from post-production is, is that the, the women sounded really great, primarily because they had these corsets on and there's a load of air just in there, you know, and you can put the... But you can see with the men, they said, you know, they were mostly very usable, but you can see that they're wearing a lot of them are wearing a big collar that has like a flap that comes out here. And then they've got like some sort of weird neckerchief tie thing on and a cravat and, you know, all sorts of other stuff that you're just like, oh, you know, the radio mic, I'll be saying, oh, it sounds a little bit rustly. And they're like, well, it's not, it's, you know, it's sat in pure air behind their thing. But, you know, the, the collar is rubbing against their six hour old stubble and causing a bit of a bit of noise or you know it's just the fabric in their stuff you know the fabric in in their jackets rubbing against it so we had to sort of live with that but on the whole the feedback from post is very positive they're very happy you know they said there's very little actual adr that's not additional lines which is good because when you know with covid you know, we wrapped shooting on the 28th of February, I think. And, you know, the shutdown happened, you know, 10 days later or whatever it was. You know, you can't get the actors in to do ADR in Soho. They're, you know, some of them are back in America or some of them are elsewhere. And and so they sort of had to live with what we gave them. And, you know, it, they're very happy with that. And you can tell by, you know, it sounds good. I always, whenever there's a show I do you know sort of the day or two afterwards I'll go on Twitter and I'm searching for like Bridgerton bad sound Bridgerton <laughs> inaudible dialogue <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know normally there's one person who's complaining about it but there was no one no one you know I couldn't find anything on social media that had like Bridgerton bad sound on it you know everyone can hear what they're saying yeah that doesn't surprise me I think it sounds fantastic um, and I can't imagine anyone finding fault with it, especially when I'm considering all the challenges that you had in front of you. And I hadn't even considered, as you say, that because you wrapped so close to 
the effects of COVID taking hold, that that, that was another kind of unexpected challenge for, for post-production. So really interesting. Good to hear that, that you got that positive feedback from post as well, who had their, I guess, their hands slightly tied by the nature of lockdown. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. And of course, Johnny, um, in any shot, any shot there is possible, you were as close as possible with a boom and that would, would have always been an, another option. Maybe that goes without saying, but um, were there any particular occasions where that was difficult for you because of the nature of the wide shots or crowds? Um, generally speaking, they were pretty good at enforcing discipline and not shooting wide and tight, which is, you know, a frequent battle you often have on set. But by and large, yeah, we could usually get them to shoot a couple of wides together and then just kind of work our way in and get better tighter coverage as we went. Um, me and Tim have got a pretty efficient system where, you know, like Tim, Tim's pretty good at keeping an eye on the monitor, drawing takes and giving me an edge as we go. That, that wasn't so much an issue, but we did have were quite a few issues with the beam getting forced out sometimes by reflections because there was a lot of big mirrors when I say big mirrors, I'm talking <laughs> okay. like floor to ceiling mirrors. A lot, a lot of the locations, so like um, Lancaster House, for example, which is Prince Charles's yard, you know, in one of the rooms we filmed there, there's like a floor to ceiling mirror. And, it, you know, it's basically just a, a, a wall that is a mirror. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and there's all just, I'd say every location we went to, we had issues with mirrors at some point. It wasn't so bad in the studio, although they built a lot of mirrors on the sets, you know, at least we had control of those because you could get our department to clock them. But, you know, if you go to a place like Wilton House or Lancaster House or Castle Howard, you can't start really adjusting things because, you know, it's like, they're like antiques, basically. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you don't just start pulling mirrors off walls, though. Yeah, so, yeah, I would say, <laughs> generally speaking, you know, we never really had issues getting coverage on the boom. We always knew we, we would get it. It's when it sort of, you know, it depended on how we were doing for time. You know, there's a couple of occasions where, you know, because of, you know, location availability and we were pushed for time, you know, you might have to make some compromises occasionally. But generally speaking, yeah, we were pretty, you know, we had a good working relationship with the DOP and the director and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. And like, as you say, I guess core really is uh, you guys work together really well, have a good working instinct. And that, I imagine, shortcuts a lot of conversations. That, that might otherwise need to be had to get the most out of it. Um, but talking about locations uh, as well as as well as interior, we've kind of touched on. We might come back to. Um, there's a lot of exterior locations as well. And what I recognised was local to my area, like Bath and Bristol. Um, but I know as well there's there's Salisbury, Yorkshire, Greenwich. I think were others. Uh, so were there any particular challenges to shooting exterior in the middle of? Big cities, spaces that are normally busy. Lots of traffic noise, which kind of gave the game away that it wasn't Regency era London. Yeah, <laughs> the obvious one, I guess, yeah. Yeah, so the obvious sort of, I don't know if you can tell or if you know, but, you know, the sort of square that they're sat around, you know, the Bridgeton House is on one side and the Featherington House is on the other side. Now, Bridgeton House is Ranger House, which is on Blackheath Common. I think it's the A, is it the... 205 or whatever you know where the little biker cafe is on the common it's right there you know you're 50 meters away from a main artery in and out of london but then 
Featherington House is in Bath on, I've forgotten what the road is called. You know, it's much quieter, but then they CGI the two in together. You know, so the square doesn't actually exist. Okay. You know, it's a CGI job. But, you know, the, the main road in and out of London, one of the main roads in and out of London is right there. Mm. You know, and you're doing these big dialogue scenes where, you know, one of the Bridgertons is going off somewhere and the whole family comes out the front of the house to say goodbye and they all have a line. And so that's, that was an issue. And then Lady Danbury's house is in, in Bath, I think. Was it Bath? It's, it's a museum. And the main road in and out of Bath is literally, you know, 15 metres away from yeah. where we're doing these scenes <laughs> and they're on horseback, you know, and there are flambeaux going and, you know, you're like, well, there are trucks, you know, sat at the traffic lines <laughs> 20 <laughs> metres away. You know, this isn't ideal for us. But I guess it's the sort of thing where you can't, for season one, you can't build these places. Mm. You know, they're not going to spend millions and millions of pounds on building this square without knowing whether it's going to be renewed for a second season. So, you know, they sort of have to do it. But, you know, it was good getting, you know, getting the radios in a good spot and the booms were good at rejecting the, you know, the sort of exterior noise. It's only when a motorbike or whatever would go past that we had a problem and we were quite lucky getting other takes or we'd do loads of takes you know, from loads of angles. So I guess Post can just sort of nick it. If there's a second or two of something going past, then, you mm. know, they can nick the sound from somewhere else and it's not the end of the world. But it was, you know, yeah, it is, it is annoying doing these things, you know, in these positions. But at the same time, it's at Ranger House, there's this biker cafe just over the road so we could get a cold can of Coke when we wanted to, you know, which was <laughs> nice, which you're not going to get elsewhere. So, yeah. Yeah. Unexpected benefits. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, again, I'd, I'd have no sense, certainly from watching the show, that that you've got two sides of the street in two entirely different sonic locations. Um, that works really well. So again, just amazing work from everyone in sound, I guess, really. So, I mean, coming back to the interior locations as well, the, what struck me is that because they are such large spaces, um, in my mind, the acoustics of those spaces would be very telling. Um, and there would be much more colour on the dialogue um, than there is. And I, I mean that in a complimentary sense, that the dialogue always feels very warm and direct and you're never overly aware of, of the spaces, but they look very grand. And So was there any particular solutions that you found that allowed you to get such good signal-to-noise ratio, really? We, I mean, we use MKH-60, Sennheiser MKH-60s, almost exclusively across the job just because... You know, in some of these big locations, when there are these big balls, I guess we were lucky in that when, you know, so when, say, Simon and Daphne have gone to Cliveden, which is Castle Howard up in Yorkshire, they actually want it to sound like a big empty room. You know, when, when they're so, you know, when the Daphne's sort of maid is showing her round, they want it to sound empty and loud, you know, sort of echoey. But then when, you know, you do get into these more intimate scenes or, you know, the bigger ball scenes in the big places, there's hundreds of people there and they do quite a good job of absorbing all the sound. We were quite lucky in that, you know, we like to put rubber back carpets down underneath everyone. Okay. But 
also with with a lot of these locations they're super paranoid paranoid is probably not the right word they're <laughs> super worried about us trashing the floor yeah okay it's yeah. very likely to happen yeah. so locations would put down these rubber back carpets which is great for us because it sort of does half our job for us sure you know when they turn up with these giant cages full of rubber back carpets and just put down hundreds of carpets everywhere you're like oh you know it's now not our problem if they're going to see the carpets it's locations problem to take them in and out and yeah it was convenient because when they wanted it to be seem empty it sounds empty because it is empty but then when they do come in I guess you know you have these scenes where Simon and Daphne are having dinner or the the Featherington household are having dinner they'll be in a living room together but there's still 10 people in the room you know to absorb the sound there's enough sort of dead material there to absorb any any echo and it sounds a bit more homely than it looks if you know what I mean yeah yeah sure and then as, as you touched on it um you know most so many of these scenes are um very crowd heavy one way or the other um there's either a lot of movement or the blocking is such that you have people in frame all all the time so I get like as you say the carpet I suppose neutralized a lot of that but was there any particular considerations with for one thing uh johnny being able to get in a place he wanted to with within what feels like a very busy and bustling scene and being able to get the mic as in the ideal place that actually wasn't as difficult as you might think okay yeah. sure generally speaking you've got like me the steady cam up the focus puller the cast obviously and then you've got all of these dancers who were moving around a lot but they were they were pretty good at sort of working around us actually and also yeah, they okay. were quite amenable to um you know, like they would let us put carpets down on the dance floor for some of the tighter shots and they didn't mind dancing on the carpet. And they were also, if you asked them to be a bit more light-footed, they generally would try to do that. Um, so yeah, they were all like, you know, the dancers were all very experienced and were pretty good at working around you. So, so you weren't having to sort of pad shoes or anything kind of crazy or, or particular like that? Not really with the dancers, no. The, the essays, we'd, you know, we'd have to put a lot of carpets down for background or you know tester tape in their feet and stuff um, and sort of wrangling them was a bit more tricky than the dancers um, I guess because the dancers were more experienced at being on set so they kind of understood what everyone was trying to achieve a bit more hmm. the essays you know he was there's a lot of like background chat from them as well you know a lot of trying to get them to stay quiet yeah. and mime and um, yeah okay sure unfortunately we had a couple of like pretty good crowd third ADs who were good at sort of herding the sheep for us if you will. And then, yeah, we had sort of like, I would say, they developed a bit of a, a sort of a good cop, bad cop approach to it. You had one who was quite nice and would try and direct them by persuasion and then another one who would direct them through fear. So you could sort of send the nice <laughs> one in first and then if that didn't work, you could send in the meaner one who would just kind of yeah, okay. crack the whip and whip them into shape and get them to be quiet. But yeah, you know, when you've got like a hundred essays in a scene plus dancers, it all of a sudden, it becomes like a bit of a it can be a bit of a nightmare, but like I said, if you can sort of get the, the ADs on board and get them to understand what it is you're trying to achieve and, you know, get the, the dancers and the choreographer on board, you know, it, it makes life a hell of a lot easier. So, And I imagine a lot of this was um, also made easier through sort of rehearsals and pre-conversations and maybe um, liaising with camera about where they needed to be and where you could be in relation to them as well. Yeah, um, yeah. 
I'd say like the, the working relationship with the camera department on this was fairly typical. Um, but I mean, to be honest, they were like they were they were super chill. To be honest, they were a really nice camera team. It's quite easy to to work with them. And um, we had a couple of really experienced steady cam ops, just like you know, really professional guys who were you know very communicative. Always let you know what they were doing and stuff. And we were really good at giving you, you know, letting you know what, what the headroom of a shot was going to be. So, you know, if they say to you, you know, the headroom is going to be eight inches, you could trust that for the duration of that shot, the headroom was going to be eight inches and they wouldn't deviate from that, which would make life a lot okay. easier. And the yeah. focus pullers were really helpful as well. You know, if they ever saw something, you know, if, like, if, you, if you nibbled into shot or they saw a bit of a reflection or a shadow or something, they would, you know, they would come straight up to you and just tell you, you know, I caught you briefly at that moment there, you know. So you could always, you know, if there was a problem, you could always work with them to find a solution. So it was good with the with the steady cam we had in the studio. So when all of Bridgerton House and all of Featherington House are in the studio and they're up on stages because you know there are scenes where you can see the stairs going down. So you need to be, you know, you need to have the sort of ground floor raised above the floor, if you know what I mean. Mm. And then, you know, when we'd be doing a scene. And you'd hear the floor creak, you know, and you'd be getting, so, you know, after like a take, you know, you get the chippy to come in with his drill to try and screw the floors down. And Leo would, uh, the Steadicam would always be like, oh, you know, I think it's here. You know, he remembers, he wasn't just thinking about, oh, this is my shot, da, 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 da. I'm just going to, you know, he's quite a big lad. But he would, you know, he'd come and he'd see us doing it and he'd be like, oh, I think there was something over there as well. You know, you might want to put a couple of screws in there and over there. You know, so it was quite a collaborative effort. You know, and then he'd also be like, "Oh, you know, I, you know," he'd come and say, "Like, I'm really sorry." You know, I was standing on a really creaky, creaky bit of floor all through that one. You know, we're going again anyway, so it doesn't matter. Let's put some screws in, fix that. Yeah, that's really yeah, good to hear. Encouraging to hear. So, so much collaboration going on to perfect that. Because amongst all of this, we talked about so far as well. You've also got. Uh, presumably either music playback or, or live music or a mixture of both? It was primarily music playback. So, we, we, you know, we, we sort of took the opinion right from the off that if there was any sort of playback involved, we didn't want to have anything to do with that because the scenes were so busy. You know, it might be nice to, you know, I think there's one where the Bridgertons, there's like a theme towards the end of the series where... I've forgotten who it is. I think it's one of them's trying to bang out a song, figure out a song, and it would be nice to have control of that playback, you know, me, but at the same time, there are seven people talking in this in this four-page scene. You know, it's sort of... I don't want to be thinking, like, oh, God, press play at this point. But then there were days where there's a market scene when they're up at Cliveden, and there were these Pandalian minstrels there and we actually got Simon Bishop in. He came in and he recorded the Pandalian minstrels at unit base in the morning, first thing in the morning. And then when we got round to doing it at four o'clock in the afternoon, you know, we played it back into earwigs through them. So they were playing sort of, you know, they were musicians. They can play the music, you know, and they're listening back to what they've played. So they're you know, they're sort of sunk up perfectly with their instruments, but it was all playback. Yeah, just because we always wanted everything in the earwigs to get it away from the dialogue. You know, we don't want music playing out, you know, all over our 
you know, our dialogue. So Yeah, absolutely. It'd be a nightmare for editing and yeah. keeping that sound consistent. Something else Simon Bishop did, if you remember, when um had a couple of scenes in the studio when they were playing the the piano forte. Do you remember yeah. he, he mic'd up the piano? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they they yeah. basically they they were quite precious about these uh, piano fortes that they had because they were well I guess they were sort of antiques and um, so you know like art department weren't allowed to move them without supervision from the the piano people and um, although they were quite precious about these pianos they 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 were uh, amenable to you doing things so you know when Simon wanted to actually put a mic inside one of the pianos to get like a nice crisp recording they they were like yeah they were fine with it they just had to be there with him when he when he position the mic and put it in there but um, yeah but again it's just that just a, a good example of um, you know cooperation between departments getting people on board with what it is that you're trying to achieve you know yeah sure uh, another thing I, d- I don't really want to miss as I noticed in the show and it's kind of come up before regarding problematic background noise potentially was the presence of animals I mean in particular we've got uh, a parrot at least one I could see in, in one scene uh, so was was that a problem for you? Yes, the parrots were a problem. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah <laughs> and it was one of those where <laughs> it's not like you know the other the other animals that were a problem was the queen's dogs that yep. you know they would sort of like yap away and be doing like little dog snuffling noises, but you know they're sat on the queen's lap and they're sat on the queen's maids' laps. You know there'll be five maids, each of them holding a dog. I say maids, five ladies in waiting or whatever it is. Mm. But the power, you know, the dogs you could sort of, as soon as they're out of shot, you know, let's lose the dogs, you know, and they go next door and they, you know, sit with their owners quite happy. The parrots, you know, you sort of try and lose the parrots. They've got to get them out the cages or they've got to move these big, at least a metre across cages. And they can't just take them next door because then you still hear these stupid parrots squawking away. <laughs> you, know, you know, they've sort of, they can't just go one room over. They've got to go out of the building, into the car park, away. But then they had fake parrots. They had stuffed parrots. So once we'd sort of, they're in the background, we could just have the stuffed parrots. But there were a couple of, there's sort of wider shots where you have these parrots, you know, they start off in foreground on the, on the parrot and the parrots are just so loud. You know, it's like nothing, I guess because they're inside as well. You know, it sort of echoes around. And there were quite a few of them. It wasn't like one or two parrots. I think there were about six or eight parrots in that day. Oh, OK. You know, it was, yeah, not ideal. And then if you see there's a a Zoom meeting between the post-production people and, like, an Australian audio guild. Yeah. And the post-production people, like, have a chat about the parrots and smile about what a pain in the ass they were. You know, it's, yeah, not ideal, those parrots. But then the horses, I mean, the, you know, there, there was quite a lot of horse stuff. The horses were all really good. You know, Jen, on the whole, that we didn't really have much issue with the animals. It was primarily the Queen's dogs sort of being dogs snuffling around while we're trying to shoot some dialogue. And they're sat on the lap of the person that's trying to speak. And the parrots, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine maybe for your experience that... that you would have known what to expect with horses and dogs, that, but parrots was a bit more of a surprise. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's interesting that I, I don't recall hearing the parrot in any of the scenes, but obviously they were very vocal outside of that. 
Oh, they look great, of course. So it's a nice addition. Uh, so yeah, a couple of other locations that I just like leapt out to me, just be really interested to touch on were, for one, the the boxing ring. That seems like a set that could be a real headache for you or could be built in a way that, you know, it makes things really easy for you or somewhere in between. So was there any challenges with that when you when you first saw that? Well, the, I mean, the sort of with the boxing ring, the challenges is that they're topless, you know, or they're, <laughs> they're also trying to punch each other. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it makes it problematic for radio mics. So we didn't really use radio mics in that in the boxing rings but you know we worked around it we worked around it we put I think we put plant mics in the corners for certain scenes so that when they're having their little talk in the corner or you know I think we put a, you know like a DPA like a sort of what we would use as a radio mic sort of strung it along a bit of rope so that you know, it's sat there ready for when they come over to have their discussion at the rope yeah, okay. you know there's a little DPA sat right there waiting for them and that was sort of how we worked around that yeah with regards to the scenes that were set around the boxing ring yeah there was quite a lot of scenes like you you shoot like a deep three shot so you'd have like Bassett and Mondrich who'd, they'd still be topless and then you'd have like Mondrich's wife round the corner of the ring yeah you could you know she'd be wearing a wire she's obviously she's wearing a, a costume and She's not topless like Mondrich and Bassett, but then you could get a plant mic on her quite, you know, there's a couple of quite neat little positions like Tim mentioned on the corner or on the actual ropes. And then, you know, you've got Mondrich like in the middle maybe and he's, you know, he's speaking to Bess, so he's turning his head constantly. So you've got to make sure you've got a good beam coverage on him because it's the only only source you've got on him at that, at that time, you know. And then, yeah, of course, sure. when you shoot the reverse, you then you've got another problem because now you've got Bassett in the back of a shot, and there's quite a bit, quite a lot of headroom on him, but he's got no radio mic on. And then you know you've got to try and find a way to try and hide a plant mic in shot, and then hope that you know if he comes through well enough on the boom that it's usable, which it was, which is great, you know. But um, and was it rehearsed action at all, or were they just really sparring effectively? Um, and just finding their lines through that. No, there was, a, you know, they, they rehearsed the, yeah, when they're sparring in the ring, that was very choreographed and rehearsed. And um, it had to be really, because they shot with the steady cam in that quite a lot as well. So, okay. A couple of those scenes, you know, you've got Bassett and Mondrich, and then me and the steady cam up on a grip, you know, like doing do si do in the boxing ring. And, you know, he's like whipping back and forth between the two. And yeah, yeah, those those they were quite tricky sometimes. Those scenes, and um, yeah, you know, we had a couple of different DOPs who had different styles of lighting. So you know, one DOP style of lighting was easier for me than the other ones. Um, it lit a lot softer, and um, because that that location was actually at um, Chatham Docks, and there was okay. a lot of like high windows. So sometimes they lit through the window. So you had sometimes you had some quite hard light coming in from quite high up. And shadows were an issue, but then sometimes it wasn't it wasn't lit like that. So sometimes it wasn't too hard, and then sometimes it was really hard. Yeah, okay. Quite exhausting for you, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a lot of movement. That I kind of, I actually quite like that. I'd rather be doing something that's quite energetic and has a lot of movement than just kind of stood there static, not really doing anything. And like I said, you know, again, you know, because we had a really good steady cam up, so it was quite what could could have been very difficult was made a lot easier by having, you know, a good camera up. And, and to be fair, I just want to give uh, 
credit where credit's due to the grip, actually. I was drawing one of those takes. Actually, I came close to falling out the ring because the, the ropes on that ring weren't weren't very taut. They were quite slack. And they'd rigged the ropes around the outside of the corners, not the inside of the corner. So, like, normally on a boxing ring, there's, like, between the rope and the edge of the canvas, there's, like, a bit of space. But there wasn't on that ring. So, like, at one point, my foot sort of nearly slipped off the edge of the canvas and this grip, like grabbed me like you know like slapped me like in you know in, in between the shoulder blades and like pushed me like back into the ring <laughs> nailed the take smashed it sounded great but great so it was all good cool grip with the spider sense it's always helpful there was the floor any kind of problem for you as well or was that sort of more constructed in your favor as opposed to being a, a genuine boxing ring surface because they are they normally sprung i think it was sprung but then it sort of it sounds natural. Yeah. Okay. You know what I mean? There's when when we're doing the actual boxing, when there's the crowd in there, you know, where it's sort of Modric versus the beast or whatever, and there's hundreds of people in there, you know, you don't really hear the floor, it's not a problem. Hmm. The sound design has more to do with it than than what we do. You know, as long as you can hear the the dialogue, then it's fine. But then the sort of when it's, you know, Simon and and Modric having their sort of sparring or when I've forgotten which one of the Bridgerton boys it is gets in and they have a sort of fight about it. You know, it, it just sounds natural and sounds good. Hmm. You know, so I'm quite happy to, you know, I'll live with that noise. You know, it, it just sounds natural. So it's not overpowering the dialogue. So interesting to hear, though, like say you make a kind of creative judgment on it effectively as this feels right, sounds right. So not all noise is a problem. I'd forgotten about that scene actually. You just reminded me about Tim. So when we shot that, did we did we have to we wired him up for the initial bit for the dialogue outside the yeah. ring, and then and then he gets into the he gets into the ring, and they have a and then we had to know. take his wire off, didn't we? So we sort of got like partial coverage on his radio mic, and then yeah, had to rely on the boom for the or the the bit where they're sparring and talking. Then also when they're sparring, they're you know they're very loud. Hmm. You know, is that that particular scene? He's angry because I've forgotten what he's done something with Daphne, or you know he hasn't done anything with Daphne, but you know he's taken offence to it, and he's all angry. It's before the duel, you know, the night before the duel. Yeah. So yeah. they sort of come in and have this angry shouting chat whilst boxing. You know, and it sounds like an angry chat whilst they're boxing. So, you know, as long as you can hear what, clearly hear what they're saying, you know, I'm not going to kill myself trying to get rid of a bit of, you know, we could have put carpet down, but then, you know, there's always the thing of there's a grip walking around with the camera, you know, they could trip on the carpet, actors, you know, it's that sort of thing where I'll just leave it be. You know, we're hearing the dialogue very clearly. They're going to cover it with a load of, sort of other noise as well foley noise so you know i'll just let it let it go yeah you know and it seems to work really well you know the the boxing scenes all sound really good yeah i'd agree with that definitely yeah interesting and so talking about making those kind of decisions especially on surfaces i noticed in the final ball the sort of final dramatic scene uh we get an establishing shot of a dancing floor surrounded by stone which you do hear under some of the dialogue as they're moving around. So was that another example of where you could lean into that as opposed to trying to to fight that? So the final ball, uh, 
you know, it, it was overpowered by the fact that, you know, the rain was there, mm. you know. So what was meant to happen was, was that was meant to be done in the middle of summer in Cyan House, you know. So we, they've basically made the middle of Cyan House in the studio because we would do shoot it in summer. Obviously, it starts raining and they have this conversation. And in summer, when it's 20 degrees or whatever, the actors can get a bit wet and it's not the end of the world. You know, they can stand and have this conversation. But we ended up shooting that in, it was February, mid-February. Now, you can't really put the actors outside in the wet when it's three degrees outside. You know, they're very quickly going to get very cold. And <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it was it was all overpowered by the sort of, the rain's coming. You know, we we put carpet down at the top of the scene. You know, we did this thing of... You know, because once stuff's wet, you can't really dry it off. Mm. You know, not on that scale. You can't, and you can't have a second set. You know, so we shot all the dialogue. We put carpet down. We did it in the traditional way of, you know, carpet down, you know, get the dialogue. And then, you know, the rain comes and then don't really want the carpet to get soaking wet, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it all comes up, mm. you know, and it was, it was good because there was quite a significant downtime in between you know the start of the scene and the when the rain comes you know so before the rain came everyone stops they change costumes a bit and you know all of this stuff happened you know and we got a chance to go in and sort of waterproof all their radio mics do all of this stuff i mean johnny knows more about this than me um so yeah we put quite a bit of thought into the radio mics beforehand because then i haven't really had to do anything like that before so it was quite you know it was unknown territory for me to be honest um, hmm. but I am um, there's a guy called Simon Kohlmeyer who I know and I, I remembered like some years previously he'd done a documentary in uh, the Amazon and he was quite you know experienced at you know figuring out methods to waterproof radio mics and actually he, he'd got a lot of advice back, back when he did that job someone put him in contact with Mark Ulano who I suppose he kind of wrote the book on how to waterproof radio mics because he did Titanic in the 90s. So um, he passed a lot of useful advice on Simon Colmeyer, who gave me a lot of useful advice as well. So what we ended up doing is, because we tried a couple of different things, which we quickly realised weren't going to work. So we ended up not using Aquapacks, which was our initial plan. But um, so basically they were, they were just a bit too bulky. And, you know, Phoebe, okay. who plays Daphne, you know, she's, she's got a very slim figure. And then, um, yeah, it just wasn't going to, you know, you could see it bulging out and small of the back or whatever. Um, so what we did is we black tacked the mic limo into the transmitter to seal it so it was waterproof so nothing could get into the transmitter. And then we wrapped that really tightly in cling film. And then we just put the packs, you know, in their thigh strap or their waist belt, whichever. So that regard, it was fairly similar to what we usually did anyway um, but then protecting the actual mic the, the the capsule was a lot trickier so we put them in dismounts which we put upside down so that any water would flow over the mic over the, the dismount and then we, we sealed the wire going into the dismount with a little bit of Joe sticky stuff and then okay. we put like got a little bit more Joe sticky stuff and put that around the edge of the dismount so that any water that went on it would just flow over the dismount and not actually go into the mic capsule. 
Yeah, yeah, sure. and it, 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 yeah, it worked surprisingly well. I was, you know, I was pleasantly surprised by how effectively it worked. Actually, um, yeah, it's something you know we, like I said, we spent a lot of time discussing it beforehand, and it went from being initially seeming like it was going to be a bit of a nightmare to, you know, on the night it, you know, it wasn't too difficult. You know, but essentially, what it all comes yeah, down sure. to is, you know, a preparation. You know, the more you plan in advance, the easier it is on the night. So, because then with the booms, we had to you know, waterproof, we're wireless booms. So you've got the SMDB, you've got the UMP2, you know, you've got to keep them dry, but then also, you know, we got a couple of rain men, I think they're sound guy solutions, maybe, you know, that cover the mic, you know, to stop the, I mean, there were 48 rain heads in the ceiling. They had 55 tonnes of water, 55,000 litres of water ready to go. They, they didn't end up, we ended up actually not using anywhere near that much. I mean, it's so much water that they had to have two bowsers there, two water tankers, one to put the water in and one to take it out because you can't just allow that amount of water just to go into the drains. Yeah, of course. Because you'll flood the sewers. So, you know, for everyone, that scene was a bit of a nightmare. You know, they'd, they'd had to build this whole set within what they planned to be a sort of a giant tub. Do you know what I mean? So, right. you know, the gravel on the floor was there specifically to allow the water to go through and then filter out into these sort of giant areas where the water would then be pumped out wow. back into this second water tanker. So there are 48, 48 of these rain heads and then there were three stands to add the water in as well. And we had, a, you know, we had long discussions. We got on quite well with the special effects guys and they had them all rigged individually. So when, you know, for the big wide shot, they had all 48 of these rain heads going. But then once we got in, they could turn off all of the rain heads that weren't contributing to the shot, which helped to keep the noise down of the rain hitting the floor, which helped us. It, you know, it was also, you know, helpful for them not to use up all of their water on a couple of rain heads that no one's seeing. But, you know, primarily for us, it was really useful because, you know, for most of it, they only had 12 or 16 of these rain heads going for the area, you know, above Simon and Daphne and also what you could see behind them. Hmm. You know, once we're in, we're in and you're not seeing this whole courtyard. You're only seeing a little area of the courtyard. So we just had those rain heads going. And again, the audio we got was actually really good. You know, post-production, you know, we're very happy with it. You know, and I, as far as I'm aware, it's the, you know, it's the audio we recorded, so... Yeah, and there's a fair bit of it. It, it really is a, a proper dialogue scene, really. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a sort of, you know, it's not... It's one of those scenes where, yes, they could ADR it, but it's an emotional scene, you know. It's the culmination of they've, you know, they've nearly broken up and they're getting back to... You know, their marriage was on the rocks or whatever, and, and this is a sort of them fixing their marriage... I don't think they'd be able to bring that level of emotion to an ADR booth. Mm. You know, it'd be tough for them to do that. Yeah, I'd agree. I think we did really well getting that. Yeah, it looks and sounds great, and I'm sure the actors were glad not to have to try. Really interesting. Were you getting soaked as well, Johnny, in, in position, or with the nature of the rainheads, was it so kind of isolated? Um, I got absolutely annihilated by the rain. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I thought, you know, like I said, I, I prepared for this. I brought all my, my wet weather gear in. You know, I had like my, my waterproof trousers on, my, my Gore-Tex trainers, my winter coat, and you know, I like wore a cap 
and then put my hood up over that and like pulled it tight so I could keep my vision clear during the take. And then, you know, I was wearing gloves and like did the Velcro straps up tight on my cuff. So I was like, I'm totally waterproof, nothing's getting in. And then I still got wet, you know, like I was being, you know, during a take, I could feel like water trickling down my sleeves. And it, yeah, you know, I was, I was mentally prepared for it to be really like quite heavy, but it was, it was more than I was, I, I was expecting it to be. Um, the, the, the rest of the sound department were pretty much in agreement that I should be the one to get wet. <laughs> yeah. Because we, 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 had, we had an extra first day, first day essing for all of the ball scenes, but we had um, James Gibbon. I think he was uh, quite relieved that uh, I got wet and he managed to stay in the draw. So. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, it's great. Yeah, definitely worth the effort all round. Sounds great. It sounds like um, it was one of the last shoots in the production schedule as well shooting in february um was it the big finale in more ways than one uh no there was still i think there was still a few days left because i remember that where they built this sort of dam around the thing to collect all the water that it didn't really work and the water went absolutely everywhere okay in the studio who knows it's one of my favorite bits is when it all goes wrong <laughs> that's when i've you know, I really come alive. Um, <laughs> yeah, just to come back around, really, um, it is an enormously successful show. And I think Netflix has confirmed it's their most watched programme and also confirmed it as uh, for a second season as well. So I uh, just wondered if there's anything you could talk about with that, mainly in regards to any anything you learned from season one that you'd take forward or any of the kind of discussions that are happening that you think is going to improve things for you. Going, you know, having the second season... With the studio, you know, there are things we know now about the studio that we're a couple of months out from shooting and we're, you know, I'm in quite regular contact every time we think of something else that we'd like doing. Like, you know, there was a fire exit out of the catering area that went straight into the set. And so everyone would just use that all the time. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's that sort of thing where we're like, oh, now we know that this is a problem. You know, we're mentioning it to them and trying to get them to fix it. The, the raised stages that the sets are on, you know, there are these ramps up and down. We're getting them to carpet them straight from the off this time. You know, there are lots of little things like that that are, we're giving them the heads up that this needs to be addressed. But for a lot of it, it was such a long shoot, 28 weeks, something like that. I think, you know, a lot of these problems that we had, you know, we'd fixed by, you know, a couple of weeks in. Right, Tim was saying became, it became quite a sort of well-oiled machine after a little while. I generally found with a lot of the ball scenes, although there was a lot going on and you were busy, it was quite sort of slick, you know. We kind of, everyone had that allocated role and, it was never overwhelming at all. It was never like you never got left behind. Like you didn't know what was going on. It was like very structured in the way it was filmed. Everyone had their sort of designated tasks. On the, on the first block, we had one of the balls we shot in Bath. We actually had him. Um, there was an issue because the unit base was about a thirty-minute drive from the location. I think ultimately it wasn't quite that far. It was like twenty, twenty-five minutes. But we realised we we were potentially going to be losing Lizzie, our second AS, for like an hour. If she had to go to base to do radio mics, you know, like if you've got 12, 14 people speaking, you've got, you know, you kind of sometimes you have to wrangle radio mics between cast. And we ended up getting a, another second AS in to remain on set so that, you know, Lizzie could go off and do radios. 
and then you know like we had James as a as another first AS and then we had Mark doing playback we had our trainee as well so you know there were times when like you know there's loads going on but you've got the personnel to get things done so you know some of the, the shoot days at the balls although you know they were some of the the sort of most efficient days at work I've, I've ever had actually again I think it shows through the quality of the of the sound in the show that we get to see it sounds like things are just going to get better going into season two really with all that in mind which is great so I look forward to hearing it and hearing about it just one last curiosity uh really is is that I don't know when the shooting schedule is about but do you think um do you think covid is still going to be any kind of issue for you I think it I think covid is going to be a factor for quite quite a lot while longer still and um, but you know it, it's it's a problem which we've you know we've had time to adjust to it and come up with you know methodologies to work around it now well either way the public have spoken certainly they they're going to be eager for the second series to come around so yeah, I guess I just wish you luck with uh, those kind of challenges, but I'm sure it'll turn out great. That was such a great insight. So I just wanted to say thanks to both of you, Tim and Johnny, for taking the time to to answer these questions and just go into so much detail about um, your work on the show. Cool. Cheers. Thanks for having us. Okay. Well, thanks again to um, Tim and Johnny for spending the time chatting to Owen um, about the recording of Bridgerton. As you can hear, Hopefully, with Lee Court being on the edge of a city and in the modern world, there's plenty of noise around for production sound teams to cope with. And bearing in mind that, that Bridgerton was actually shot just before the kind of COVID pandemic really kicked in. So there would have been a lot more noise at the time as well. Yeah, just great sound um, achieved all around. Some real challenges, uh, including planes like the one above. So thanks again to Tim and Johnny. We're actually hoping to have a follow-up episode uh, to chat to the Post team, who, as you heard in the episode, were really happy with Tim and Johnny's work and are also quite keen to share some of their insights from um, working in Post on this series during a pandemic. So we'll hope to bring that to you soon as well. Yeah, it'd be really interesting, if we can, to um, talk to them about the kind of second part of the, of the same process. So... Until then, if anyone has any ideas for the podcast or would like to get involved, then, you know, we're on Twitter at Amps Podcast, um, or you can email us at ampspodcast at gmail.com. And Amps membership is open to those working in sound for film, TV and games, as well as students who intend to make it their profession. Um, So for more information about Amps and how you can become a member, you can visit amps.net. Yeah, so please do get in touch. And just one final thanks to Bubblebee Industries as well for their wind bubbles, which we're currently using now to keep the wind off our voices. Yeah, Bubblebee are a sustaining member of AMPS and we're very grateful for their support. Yeah, so check out their toys as well. Yeah. Okay, see you soon. See you soon.